QAV. This is episode 542TK. We're recording this Tuesday, the 25th of October, 1.46 p.m. Brisbane time, 2.46 in the uh, more advanced states. <laughs> that uh... <laughs> doesn't feel that advanced at the moment. We're on the water. It's just incredible. I don't know, I don't know how your farmers survive yeah. with daylight savings in place. No, no, they're, they're like, <laughs> like, we can't do it in Queensland. It's impossible. How are you, TK? Yeah, good. Well, you don't you don't need daylight saving with the farmers in Queensland. Just do the southeast corner, so everyone can stop frigging around about whether it's an hour earlier or an hour later when they call people in Brisbane or the Gold Coast. Yeah. Okay. So we should just have two different time zones in the state. That's your solution to make things easier. Yeah. Because <laughs> no one no one calls anyone north of Gympie, do they really? <laughs> Oh, you're including that much of the southeast corner. Okay, yeah. Probably uh, might be the first stage towards a split for the whole <laughs> Queensland. <laughs> uh, well, big news this week, Tony. I wanted to share with you and all the listeners. Uh, Fox has a podcast. So there you go. What's it called? Foot in the wall? <laughs> foot, foot through the wall? <laughs> uh, that's just what he does if I don't upload his podcast for him quickly enough. It's called The Fox and the Furious. Oh, that's a great name. Yeah, yeah, well, it's not altogether his idea. When he was in, when we were in Phoenix, he and his cousins made a, a home movie that they called The Fox and the Furious, where Fox was a superhero <laughs> and uh, was beating them up. So anyway, he started his own podcast, and uh, as eagle-eyed listeners will know the story, uh, QAV came out of a podcast my a- adult sons, Hunter and Taylor, did when they were 18 or 19, and they interviewed you, and you talked about your investing methodology, and I was I heard it, and I was like, holy shit, we should do a podcast about that. So who knows what I'm going to learn from listening to Fox's podcast. Mostly at the moment, it's about Minecraft and his friends at school, but, you know, I, I, something, cool. an opportunity may come out of it. You never know. I've learned not to dismiss my children having podcasts. It can lead to good things. Well, he obviously needs uh, a few interview subjects for his, pod- his podcast, though. That would be interesting. Yeah. You should go on as a guest on Fox's podcast. Have a, chat. have a chat about investing for eight-year-olds. He can talk about his investing portfolio, everything he knows about investing. Yeah. All right. Well, on to stock-related stuff, commodity status, platinum, now a buy, aluminium, now a sell. Don't think we own any aluminium stocks, so that wasn't really a problem. But uh, I did add Zim to one of the portfolios yesterday, uh, but I couldn't remember. We've had a lot of conversations in the past. Is Zim a platinum stock or is it uh, something else? I went back and looked through my notes and decided it was probably platinum enough. But I think they also mine palladium. Yeah, that's right. Have you checked the palladium graph? No. Okay. No, that was, that was too much work. I just decided it was good enough. No, fair enough. Keep it simple. No, I think we did decide it was a platinum stock last time, didn't we? Do you remember? You remember everything. No, I don't. I don't remember. I don't remember everything. And I don't remember <laughs> deciding what Zim was. But I remember talking about it having palladium because platinum was in a sell position, but Zim was going up and we couldn't work out why. Oh, well, it went down after I added it to the portfolio. So <laughs> maybe <laughs> unlike SMR, which is up 30% since I added it. Oof by mistake to the portfolio a few weeks ago. So <laughs> you win some, you lose some in this game. Absolutely. Any other commodities that we need to talk about, Tony? 
Oh, I did have something to say about commodities. And people should check out the scorecard that has the list of commodities and their um, state in terms of three-point trend lines. Now, the only thing I, I wanted to talk about was natural gas, and that's in response to a question later on. But I did notice the scorecard didn't have natural gas on it, so we should add natural gas to the scorecard, to our list of commodities. Is there a stock doctor chart for natural gas? There is, but it looks like it's tracking the US price. And the US price uh, is a lot worse than the Asian price, which is the one that's more appropriate to us. So the Asian graph, I got mine off, uh, what's it called, FRED, the Fed St. Louis site, which is the commodities site, tracks almost all the commodities in the world and Asian natural gas. And I guess just for people, if you're unsure what commodity to use, because as we're just saying, you know, there's different types of oil, there's different types of natural gas and various other things as well. In the case of natural gas, and this is indicative of what to do, I went to the Woodside results presentation and almost all of these companies will include a graph telling you what they benchmark or where they sell their product and what they benchmark against. So in the Woodside presentation, they were talking about the Asian spot price. So I'm on Fred now. Is this uh, global price of LNG, comma, Asia? Yeah, that's the one. All right. I will add that uh, to the uh, weekly buy list uh, where we track the commodities. So seeing as we're talking about it, let's get it out of the way. What's your position on LNG? It looks (laughs) like it's a buy. Yeah. So the the chart on the Fed for Asian LNG is a very strong buy. It's shooting almost straight up. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. And that's certainly been what's been reported in the press over the last six to nine months since the Ukrainian war started. Right. People need their gas. Yeah. I can't explain why the US version of the gas chart is is not doing that, but uh, certainly the Asian one's been going gangbusters. Okay. If anyone can explain that, let us know. What else have we got? Portfolio updates. Well, it's been a crazy week in the, on the All Ordinaries, Tony. It's um, up and down like my waistline before and after my birthday or my weight before and after my birthday. Came down, but then it was back up again the last couple of days. Got any analysis on why the All Ordinaries can't decide if it's up 100 points or down 100 points on any <laughs> given day? Maybe it had a birthday. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, God, no. Well, it's again, it's forecasting it. Everyone's trying to second-guess the Fed, the Reserve Bank. So it's like people come out with reports saying the central, the Fed in the US is getting close to its target, uh, uh, what they call it, the neutral rate setting. So it's the, the, the target for interest rates so it doesn't grow or shrink the economy. And uh, therefore, they expect it to start tapering any rate increases. But who knows? And then someone comes out with a counter argument, and so the market just swings on that kind of volatility. It's fascinating to me just to watch it going up and down with no no sense of rhyme or reason. Like it's it's yeah, emotions uh, regarding the market to differ that broadly day to day just doesn't seem rational. It's not really. It's just I mean it, I think it's a factor of the incentives involved. I mean if you're a a lot of this is being driven by the bond market, right? Because that's where interest rates play out. If you're on a multi-million dollar bonus incentive and you think you've got some kind of inside... What do you mean, if? You mean, if I am? <laughs> am I not? Do we need to renegotiate? Do we need to talk about the deal? 
Uh, yeah, we do. <laughs> if, <laughs> if you think you are, then we do. <laughs> okay. Uh, my lawyers will be in touch. Uh, <laughs> sorry, back to your point. If you're on a multi-million dollar bonus deal, what's the bonds got, bond market got to do with it? Well, they're the ones who pay the most attention to the, the interest rate movements. And you can make a lot of money if you're a bond trader out of just a very small movement in yields. And if you think you, you can forecast where it's going because you've got a mate who works at the Fed or whatever, uh, you start piling in early to try and you know get, get that edge, which gives you your bonus. So... That's what it's all about. But, of course, we all know forecasting is um, a fool's game. So how does that play into the all ordinaries going up and down like a bride's naughty? Well, because it, there is a bit of a correlation between what the bond market does and what the all ords does in terms of the forecast bond rates feed into discounted cash flows and borrowing costs for companies. So people, you know, I'd, I'd hate to be a spreadsheet jockey working for Goldman Sachs or someone like that right now. Like I Almost every morning you get up and change your spreadsheet for what you think a company's worth, which is ridiculous. That's going on too. So it's it's somewhat based on forecasting about the price of money for these companies and how that's going to affect their bottom line, et cetera, et cetera. Correct. And then yeah. companies buying and selling stocks based on their predictions about what the future holds for these companies. Yeah. And and it's I mean, if you think about all the repercussions of of trying to well, of what the Fed does, it's not worry about trying to forecast what the Fed does. But if the Fed does start to taper interest rate rises and that leads analysts to think there won't be a recession in the US or Australia next year, then they're going to get more bullish on their stock purchases and their stock recommendations and that will drive the market. And then someone will come out and say, no, 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 the the Fed's going to raise interest rates further and that'll swing the market back the other way. So it's a lot of noise at the moment. For me, the most interesting thing in the last week or two was the... uh, the way the bond investors just drove the British market into the ground and claimed the scalp of Liz Trust, that was just incredible to watch. That the, the bond vigilantes, as they're called, could uh, they're just playing hard, hardball, hard-nosed investing. We don't think the British government, when it's heavily indebted, you know, it's, it's a higher risk than the US government or the German government, and we're going to sell off our bonds there. So good luck, fellas. See you later. <laughs> and then it just forces the government, to the prime minister to resign and all sorts of things. And Boris Johnson to fly home from the Caribbean to put his hand up again. Have another crack. Only for it to be slapped down. Yeah. So much for uh, democracy if uh, you know, bond traders get to decide who the prime minister is. Correct. I saw um, Trevor Noah, a clip from Trevor Noah on The Daily Show, saying that uh, all of the former British colonies like India are now contacting Britain saying, we don't think you know how to run a democracy very good. We will come in and take care of it for you. I think it's in your own best interest that we come and run your government for you. (laughs) Yeah, we trust this. We know what it's like. Well, Australia wouldn't be putting its hand up because we've had more more of a revolving chair than they have. It's true. But yeah, it's interesting because like the the British government or the Conservative Party deliberately made it harder to change their leadership. So Liz Truss got in because they had to go through a vote of parliamentarians and then a at least six week or three month vote of the Conservative Party base and they both had a weighted say in who got elected. And this time around they just went, No, you're resigning. No, Boris, you're not standing. <laughs> no, you're not standing. Rather, you've got the job. It's just like they brought in these democratic rules and they just tossed them straight out. Really? They didn't follow them this time around? 
they did follow them, but like oh. the way around the rules was for the prime minister to resign, and yet and then to only have one nomination to replace it. Oh right, well that makes things easy. I mean, Xi Jinping uh, thinks that's a good model. He said just one candidate. That's all you really need. Yeah, it works. Yeah. Simple, simplest ways are the best ways. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Occam's Razor tells us that simplest solution is probably the right one. Back to our portfolio, last 30 days, the dummy portfolio, we're up 2.67% versus the SBDR 200, uh, which is up 3.9%. So it's still beating us by a good third. Since inception, we're up 16% and the SPDR 200 is up like 5.7%. So I looked a little bit early when I did the newsletter today. We're still beating it by 2.8% over three years. Uh, sorry, 2.8 times over three years, nearly three times. Yeah, nearly three times. And I just wanted to make a point about that because I was thinking about it during the week because my portfolio is, is kind of, you know, in a similar direction to the dummy portfolio. It was on a high a year ago and now it's dropped back. So so it's um, I'm in the same boat and I, I did a bit of a review. But, um, you know, first of all, last year we were getting sort of 24% CAGA, that, that kind of number, and now we're getting 16% CAGA. And the average is around between 16 and 24 is 20. So at some stage, we're going to revert to the mean again. And so whether it happens tomorrow or next week or next month or next year, there's going to be a catch up in the market. And we're going to be catapulted back towards our uh, standard sort of average return. So I'm not overly worried with the fact that we're down and we're, and we're trailing the index in the short term. I've seen this before. I'm, I'm pretty sure. And again, who can forecast when? That we're going to catch up. And the 19.5% that I had before this latest downturn was over a long period of time. So that gives me sort of the confidence that we are going to regress back to the mean at some at some point. And that's why we need to stay invested, I guess, as well. And, you know, by the way, 16% is still pretty bloody good. You know, I'm looking at people out there who make a big song and dance about being 1% above the index over time. Yeah, yeah. We're nearly three times above the, better than the index. And what was it? The 90% of fund managers who don't beat the index actively. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, look, it's like I believe you. Like I believe that uh, over time things will continue to go well for us. Uh, we have good years and bad years, but the good years make up for the bad years. Not that it's a bad year, as I said. Like uh, over the last, well, over the last year it's been down, but in the last 30 days we're back up. The portfolio is performing well again, even with the choppiness of the market. What else do you want to talk about? Oh, just a couple of things. Uh, the banks, or three, three of the major banks plus Macquarie are going to report this week because they're on a September 30 end of year. So watch out for those. Expect new numbers in stock doctor next week, I would have thought. There's a lot of analysis in the paper now saying the results will be good because interest rates are rising and that's um, helping them because they don't lift deposits, but they lift mortgage rates. So that they should be good. That's one to watch. It's We're into AGM season. A couple of stocks from the buy list uh, that I own that had some news. AMP came out and said that their funds under management reduced or shrunk by the least that it has in many of the quarters in the last few years since it's had problems after the Hain Commission. And uh, basically saying that the people have stopped taking their money out of the portfolio and the, the funds under management shrunk because of the market shrunk. So that's a positive for that stock. And the other one in the news was Whitehaven Coal, which is, has completed a buyback it announced earlier in the year, which has been supporting its share price. 
And it's going to have an AGM, I think, tomorrow. And analysts are expecting it to seek the continuance of a buyback or, or start a new buyback. So that will also help underpin that stock. Speaking of banks, before you go on, I added NAB to my, I think, my super portfolio in the last couple of days. So NAB is back on the buy list talking about banks, which is always interesting when we see banks hit our buy list. I've never had a lot of success with banks on in my portfolios. I always buy them, including Macquarie, and then have to sell them again pretty quickly. I haven't got them in the right period of uh, uptick in the last couple of years, but having another crack with NAB, we'll see how they go. And then the only other thing I've got is the pulled pork, which uh, this week is NWH. That's the ticker code for NRW Holdings. Confusing, one's NWH, one's NRW, but anyway. NWH, for those who don't know it, is uh, in the business of uh, engineering. When I owned it once before, it was probably more a mining contractor than it is now. They've certainly diversified into other areas. They do civil engineering now as well as mining contracting, as well as what they call MET, which is the third spoke to their wheel. And MET stands for Mining, Energy and Tech. They're manufacturing equipment for the mining sector. They're getting into energy, so oil and gas, as well as mining. And they're also uh, expanding and following the sort of thematic, which is the battery battery metals. So for a long time, they've just been focused on gold, iron ore and coal. They're getting into lithium now as well. So they're on the buy list. I guess other news for them is that they dropped the takeover offer for Macca, MLD, late in August. So they were trying to diversify and uh, and buy out that company. But Tease, another overseas uh, engineering firm, upped their offer and NWH have backed away. They're back on the buy list now. The price I'm doing this analysis at is $2.50, which is less than consensus target. And before I go into the numbers, I guess I should mention that uh, mining services companies are very cyclical, which is one of the reasons why NWH is trying to have uh, other areas like civil uh, engineering to fall back on if the mining boom or when the mining boom comes to an end. But I just point out that even that sort of strategy of, uh, of hedging your your risk is a good one, but it doesn't eliminate risk. So, you know, the share price will still suffer when the mining boom ends and and uh, contracting work starts to dry up. But this is the classic sort of case of selling picks and shovels in a gold brush. So mining contractors are good during mining booms, which we've, which we've had. And uh, I guess the, the benefit of it is that, is that, you know, if they lose a contract with BHP, they pick one up at, with Rio. Or if gold becomes a sell, then they pick up something with coal. So that's a, a benefit to them. You're not having to go through and pick which, which of the uh, mining companies you're going to invest in. They pick up work with, uh, with a lot of them, so that helps there. Back to the numbers, $2.50 is less than consensus target. Uh, the ADT for this company is quite high, so it's $2.6 million, so it will suit uh, most of our listeners. It's trading on a 5% yield, which is, which is also very good, but it is less now than the, the current mortgage debt rate, which is near enough to six. So it doesn't score there, even though it may interest people who are interested in yield. Uh, Stock Doctor Financial Health is strong and steady, which is very good. And the prop cap is also very good for this one. It's 3.9 times. So the share price is uh, 3.9 times cash per share, operating cash per share. P is 11.53, which is reasonably low, but not the lowest. So it doesn't score for that. And the share price is currently above both IVs, IV1 and IV2, and book plus 30%. 
which is only a dollar thirteen. Uh, and that's probably a, fact, a factor of the fact that you know mining companies like this don't have a whole lot of assets because they're uh, often just providing labour to mining companies, skilled workers, for example, or services to mining companies. So even though it's it's good on the value metric of price to operating cash flow, it's not scoring on our other ones of IV1, IV2, or plus 30, which is interesting, I think. But anyway, it's forecasting, or the analysts are forecasting 12% earnings per share growth, which is pretty good. But uh, when we apply the growth over PE uh, hurdle to um, in our spreadsheet, we only get 1.08. So it's less than our hurdle rate of 1.5 for a score there. Directors' holdings are only 2%, which I thought was interesting. So that's um, a zero in our spreadsheet again. Not sure why that's the case, but, but um, it is. I have to go back and do a deep dive to have a look at that. Potentially, there's uh, maybe someone who owned the company originally is sold out, but uh, certainly doesn't um, get a score for owner-founder. Gets a score for being a new three-point upturn. Like I said, it's back on our buy list. Just recently, it gets a score for consistently increasing equity. And all of those scores add up to a quality score of 10 over 16 or 63% and a QAV score of 0.16. So it's not at the top of our buy list, but it's certainly a large cap stock if anyone needs that for their portfolio. Have a look. And we don't need to keep an eye on the commodity status for any of the stocks that they're involved in selling into, like the gold industry, et cetera? (laughs) Good question. I've never done that. And my guess would be it's they're probably fairly well spread across most of them. And then they've also got civil, which doesn't have a commodity as well. Yeah, I think they've done a good job of, of spreading their risk far and wide on, uh, on the mining stocks. So no. So they're kind of neutral. Yeah. Thanks for that. Tony NWH, something with attitude. Um, I never can <laughs> come up with a good thing for what NWH stands for, but I know they don't like the police. That's all I know. Okay, Q&A time. First one is from Alex. There's a recent question posted to this forum about investing in the gold ETF, as well as Tony's comment on last week's episode that being an investor just means being an allocator of capital. All this reminded me of a book by Percy Allen called Crash Proof I read years ago. The basic premise championed in the book is to move between uncorrelated asset classes and or sectors as they cycle through, under and over performance through the use of technical indicators. For example, the All Lords EMA 50-day crossing the EMA 250-day to the downside was an indicator to get out. A similar signal in an uncorrelated asset like physical gold was an indicator to buy into as a store of value and hedge against inflationary pressures during sideways or downward-moving markets. When things reverse, sell gold and buy companies, or in their example, ETFs. Given most of us are sitting on a high percentage of cash, inflation is reducing the buying power of cash, gold is now a buy again, I think. Uh, Don't think so. The gold price is increasing with increasing economic uncertainty, the effect of a failing AUD, falling AUD, and Australia being a large exporter of gold, and gold has historically been a strong hedge against inflation. I wonder if it's worth sitting in physical gold, G-O-L-D on the ASX, rather than cash, until there are things to buy according to QAV. An alternative is to hold a basket of gold miners, GDX, as you'd get the dividend payment from a productive asset, However, with mining costs, fuel and general supply chains sitting at five times the revenue boost they're receiving from increased gold prices, those are real-time figures from an industry source, 
The price may sit flat with little to no dividend payments. Is this a topic that's been explored before? What do you think, Tony? Oh, I think it's a worthwhile strategy. It's different to QAV and and I don't know if the returns will be as high or potentially better, I guess, but there's a lot there. So to pick apart bits of it. So there was a statement there about the earning power of cash going down because of inflation, and that's true. However, given that um, we hold cash because we want to deploy it back into the market as the market um, goes from being a sell to a buy, the buying power of cash actually goes up. So what I mean is if we sell a thousand dollars worth of shares, go to cash and then buy back into that same stock or another stock and the market's down 15, 20% from where we sold out, then the, we bought 15, 20% more stock. So the cash is actually, it's like the cash has had a, it's grown, I guess, and it's, it's purchase, certainly grown its purchasing power in terms of the stock market. That's notwithstanding the fact that inflation is eating into it for other purposes, but if on a net-net basis, generally, I stay in cash. That's the first point. Second point is, my experience is I don't stay in cash for very long. Certainly didn't during COVID and certainly haven't this time around. I did go to about 50% cash a month or two ago, but it's all been reinvested again since then. Like That's another point too, is that uh, if people ask me on cash, I have rebought positions. So I have a double position in some stocks. So I would rather do that than sit in cash because uh, I want to be exposed to the market. And I guess that's the the third point, which is kind of underlying this discussion is one that we've talked about before a couple of times is that do we use a three-point trend line sell or some other way of telling whether the market is going to turn down? And uh, yeah, in, in this case, I think it, we would have done well if we had a sold out last year and bought a, a short fund, which one of our listeners is trying. Doug is trying that out. But that's not always the case. And I went back and had a look over history and it's not always the case that uh, if the market goes down, the portfolio underperforms. And that's what I found. My experience is um, A, I can usually find stocks to buy, even in downturns, and B, they don't have a correlation for the market with the market. So for example, market's going down, but energy stocks and coal stocks are going up. So while higher energy costs impact on a lot of businesses, and increase their costs, it's good if you own the, the energy stocks that are going up. So I understand Alex's point, and I think it's it's worthwhile investigating Alex, but it's not what I do in it. And I never really find myself having long periods of sitting on lots of cash to, to worry about. You like to expose yourself to the market, Tony, at all times. <laughs> yes. Yes, Cam, I do. Good, good. I'll... Keep that in mind. <laughs> Should be on a coffee mug somewhere. <laughs> expose QAV. Expose yourself. <laughs> oh, I just had a vision of one of those uh, those little boys peeing in the pool or in the in the, you know, the fountain in, in the Italian backyards. Yeah, <laughs> good old Renaissance statue. Right. So, and and rather than being exposed to gold. You'd rather be exposed to stocks that QAV processes determined are undervalued. Well, yeah, and that's a good point you, you raised and you raised when you're talking about it. Gold isn't a buy at the moment, and therefore the gold's miners aren't buys at the moment. So if you did go to gold rather than to, say, a short, an ETF that shorts the market, you might might not have as much um, much upside as, as yeah, buying the ETF that shorts the market. Now, I know that Buffett and Munger quite famously aren't big in, in, uh, supporters of the idea of buying gold. 
They hate it. I know I've heard both of them say things like gold doesn't produce anything, it doesn't generate any value, et cetera, et cetera. Are there, are there other good reasons why they don't like to hedge their portfolio in gold? Like you, are they just better off actively finding undervalued things to invest in rather than taking what might be the easier path and hedging with gold? They don't like hedging full stop. <laughs> I think one of them said something like uh, hedging is like walking the tightrope with a net. You're never going to really commit to it until <laughs> the tightrope walking until the net goes away. Then you focus. <laughs> that concentrates the mind. So that's how they approach investing. So they don't like hedging. <laughs> but yeah, they, they don't like investing in gold. But Buffett talks about it being an unproductive asset, doesn't produce anything. But that's not quite true because gold's obviously used in circuit chips and jewelry and things like that. But historically, most people have bought it as a hedge against inflation. And look, you know, it's interesting, we're in a period of high inflation, yet gold isn't really going up much. And so that either means that the hedge is finished or they're using, well, they can't be using Bitcoin because that was an even worse <laughs> investment to hedge with than gold. That's the new gold, digital gold. Yeah, people have called it a hedge against inflation, which of course hasn't worked. And I, I do wonder how much of all this goes back to the days when dollar, when the dollar was tied to gold. So Fort Knox was full of gold and there was the gold standard, which Richard Nixon, I think, eliminated. But gold certainly had, at least in the minds of investors for a long time, still had a place in their portfolio historically or sentimentally because of that um, hedge against inflation. I don't know, not a gold expert, but uh, I'll buy gold miners when they pop up on our buy list and... Uh, I'll stay invested for as long as I can in the market otherwise. And that's the end of the free episode of QAV for this week. If you're a new listener, I just should let you know how this works. So we have a free episode every week, runs for about half an hour. We have a premium episode also every week. It goes for another 30 to 60 minutes, depending on how many questions we get. It's where Tony answers questions from our club members. If you want to check out the premium episodes and all the other benefits of being a QAV club member, which is access to the checklist and, and the Bible and uh, the private Facebook groups and the other comms channels that we have invites to the dinners, Zoom calls, etc., etc. Sign up for the two-week free trial and check out all that stuff out. You can do that at qavpodcast.com.au. Look for the um, free trial button there. And if you uh, like the idea of value investing QAV style but don't feel like you have the time or resources to uh, learn how to do QAV for yourself, think about signing up for QAV Lite. That's our relatively new service where we send you the stock tips every week. And then we also monitor those stocks in a portfolio. And if they become a sell, we email our QAV Lite members and tell them that it's time to sell that stock and what to replace it with. Check that out too. It's sort of a low effort way of doing QAV. Still better if you know how to do it yourself, I think, because Tony could get hit by a bus and then where are you? But, you know, while he's not, we can do this. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au slash light, L-I-G-H-T. That's it. If you don't want to sign up to any of those, just keep listening to the free episodes. And if you have any questions, uh, shoot me an email. You'll find that on our website too. All right, have a great week and good luck with your investing. 
QAV podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129217. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions.